Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. You know, I'm not a big announcements guy before the lesson. I don't like to do that. I figure we've got somebody that does that. But I did want to make a plug. We have some connections here at Oldham Lane, and one of them is one of our shepherds, James McCoy. And uh, I think you may have seen the advertisement or the email that we are offering the vaccine on Wednesday night after services, and then it will also be offered to our community. Now, let me say this. When you hear mask or vaccine, we all get political, all right? That's not what we're trying to do here. We're not going to check your card before you can come into worship, okay? That's not the end game here. The end game here is to just show compassion, make it available. So if you've been thinking about getting it and you'd like to, that will be offered on Wednesday night. And then the, the second dose, it's the Pfizer vaccine, the second dose three weeks later. So just wanted you to know that that's available. And I thank our shepherds and thank James for, for making that available. Um, we, it's good to have connections, right? Thank you for being here this morning. So we are doing a standalone lesson this morning, which is unusual for me. I, I like to operate within series, but I had uh, this Sunday morning free as far as I didn't have a series to begin because I want to begin a new series next week. I always look at the, around the 25th of August as the start of a new year here at Oldham Lane. That's when the kids come back to colleges and we have our uh, high school and and elementary, junior high students all getting back into school, and that's kind of a, a fresh start for us. So next week, we're going to begin a series on family called This Is Us, so hopefully you'll be here for that. This morning, we're talking about not wasting your weight. You know, the word audit, it's kind of a scary word, isn't it? Especially if it applies to you. Think about maybe the IRS sending you a letter or giving you a phone call tomorrow and saying, hey, we're going to audit you. That would cause you a little anxiety, probably. But there's another sense in which we use the word audit. It's not quite as scary. Like when you audit a college class. In essence, what you're doing when you audit a college class is you're saying, I want the information, but I don't want to do the work. Right? I mean, that's essentially what you're saying. I want the knowledge, but I don't want to do the homework or be tested on anything. That's what an audit is. And that's not terrifying. Because you get enlightened without having to do all the work. And unfortunately, there are some Christians who do the same thing. They audit the Christian life. They audit church. They come in. They want the information. They want to be enlightened. They want to be inspired, but they don't really want to do the work. And that's troubling because, like with a college class, you may get the information you may get the knowledge, but guess what you don't get when you audit a college class? Credit, right? Because you didn't do all the work that's involved. And the same is true with the Christian life. At some point, you've got to activate the Word in your life. It's got to be activated before it can do anything. So you can come in and you can get inspired and you can get enlightened, you can get the knowledge. But without activation, you know what we, what we get? No credit. We call this transformation when the word is activated in your life. When you do something with it, we call that transformation. And without transformation, there's no credit. There are many Christians who suffer with a weight problem. And I don't mean a few extra pounds. I'm not talking about W-E-I-G-H-T. Is that how you spell it, Charles? Is that weight? I'm talking about W-A-I-T. 
Many of us know about waiting, don't we? Because we do it all the time. We wait at the doctor's office. We wait in line at the grocery store. We wait at stoplights. We wait for 5 o'clock to roll around so that we can get off work. We know about waiting. But so many of us are wasting our wait. We're not redeeming the wait, and therefore, we're spending our time doing other things. Maybe things that are a little less productive when it comes to eternity. When I was playing Little League Baseball, there was this practice that was widely used among Little League Baseball players. I've noticed that it's not utilized anymore, and that's a good thing. But when I was playing, you would get down in your stance, ready to field the ball, and the coach would say, let's hear some chatter. And you would actually yell at the batter, hey, batter, 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 swing batter, all in an effort to distract him. I'm so glad that has faded into oblivion. But this was actually done. Every team, and the coach would encourage it. Let's hear some chatter out there. Hey, batter, batter, swing batter. It was counterproductive, and I'll tell you why. Because so many times the fielder was focused on yelling, hey, batter, batter, that when the ball was hit to him, they didn't know what to do. You're concentrating so heavily on saying, hey, batter, batter, that when the ball is hit, instinctively, You're thinking, I've got to catch the ball, but I'm yelling, hey, batter, batter. You're not ready. And life's kind of like that. There's a lot of chatter, a lot of distractions in life, and some of them are good. No doubt, some of them are absolutely necessary, but a lot of it is just chatter. And at some point, we have to remove the chatter. We have to remove the distractions and focus on what is most important, and we have to fill our weight with something better. I want you to look with me in Revelation chapter 3. And beginning in verse 7, here's what we read. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, and I have, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have followed my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of the testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold firmly to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, from my God, and my new name. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as you know, there are seven churches that receive mail from Jesus in the book of Revelation. And this church in Philadelphia, of course, was one of those and it, we are privy to this mail. We get to read it ourselves, which is interesting because what we see is that not only does Jesus address the church in Philadelphia, he dresses the city as well. You notice how he does that in all his letters? He doesn't just address the church, he addresses the city as well. Why do you think that is? I, I don't think it's simply because he's speaking to churches on street corners. I think he's also speaking to their environment. 
Because while many of the cultures were hostile towards these churches and these Christians, while they could not change their circumstances, they might could impact their environment. They had an opportunity to change their city. And so he says to the church in Philadelphia, you have an open door. You have an opportunity here. These churches may not have been able to change what was going on around them, but maybe they could, maybe they could make an impact for good. The church that we just read about was located in Philadelphia. However, as you probably could guess, this is not the Philadelphia that was known for cheesesteaks. Philadelphia was founded for a very specific purpose, and that purpose was for the Greek culture and language to advance to Lydia and Phrygia. This mission was so successful that archaeologists tell us by A.D. 19, the Lydians had fully forgotten their own language and spoke only Greek. The famous archaeologist Sir William Ramsey says of Philadelphia that it was a center for the diffusion of Greek language and Greek letter in a peaceful land and by peaceful means. And it may be that this ease and encouragement of communication of Greek ideas also provided a wonderful opportunity or conduit for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ in those areas. The church that resided in Philadelphia was in a key position to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ amid the travel of these Greek ideas. So, could it be that this is what the Lord was referring to when he spoke, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. But there was another characteristic of the ancient city of Philadelphia that figured prominently in this message of Jesus Christ. The city was located in a volcanic plain, and that provided some advantages and some disadvantages. One advantage is there was very fertile soil in this area, and it made it, made it famous for, for wine and grapes. But obviously, when you live in a volcanic plain, there's seismic activity. There's a lot of earthquakes, a lot of tremors, and people were scared. So people would live in the city, but as soon as they felt a tremor, they would leave, and they would live in a hut outside of the city because they feared falling masonry and brick those daring enough to go into the city and live there were often chased back out because of this fear. The people literally went in and out of the city depending on the conditions. And so it could be that that's what Jesus had in mind when he stated these words. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. What a wonderful promise for people who were accustomed to of running out of the city in fear. Now, in this strategically placed, earthquake-ridden city, there was a puny church, a small church. Jesus had no condemnation for this group of Christians. When you read through the letters to the churches in Asia Minor, you find that most of them had some uh, uh, commendation, but they, they had a lot of condemnation as well. Not this one. This one only received praise from Jesus. Like many Christians living in Asia Minor, the Philadelphians were facing persecution, physical hardship, yet they persevered. Jesus spoke about their little power, which might have had something to do with their small numbers, maybe their limited financial resources or their tiny influence or whatever it may be. But despite their little power, they were still working. They hadn't used their limitations as an excuse, and they remained faithful. And Jesus said, you have kept my word and have not denied 
hide my name. Apparently, there had been a specific period when their faith was severely tested. And in spite of pressure to deny Jesus and confess the emperor, they persevered and remained faithful. Though their power was little, they had relied upon the Lord. And as a result, this church received no condemnation. It's interesting that Jesus saves the best and worst church for last, if you look at the letters. The worst church was Laodicea, and that comes next, but Philadelphia was the best. But this tiny church was in desperate need of encouragement, which is precisely what it got from Jesus. He tells the Philadelphia Christians that he will humble their enemies. You know, perhaps the greatest encouragement is that he promises to spare them from the tribulation that is about to come upon the whole world. And then our Lord states that he will strengthen them and give them a new name. And by the way, they would have known exactly what this means. Because in AD 17, when the city was destroyed along with Sardis and 10 other local cities, when it was destroyed by a massive earthquake... There was a new name given to the city when, when the emperor rebuilt. Tiberius rebuilt it and named it Neo-Cesarea, which means the new city of the new emperor. And then the city fell again in AD 19, and Vespasian rebuilt the city and renamed it Flavia. So they would have understood all about getting a new name and, and, and that new name being a new start. Jesus says, I will give you a new name that stands forever. You will live in an eternal city that cannot be shaken. You will never have to move. You'll never have to hide. You'll never have to leave and board up and pack and rebuild again. Though you are weak now, you will be strong. No more persecution. No more heartache. No nothing to have to overcome. But, and this is the key, but in the meantime, there is work to be done. While you wait, there is something that you have to do. You know, in a distance run, in a track meet, in a distant race, there's what's known as the bell lap. So when the lead runner starts that final lap, the bell is rung to signify that this is the last lap. And the Philadelphian Christians were on their last lap. They were on their bell lap. They hadn't reached the finish line yet. There was still more running to do, but they were getting close. And there's a reason that we have an opportunity to read their mail. Because this letter could have easily been written to us. Not that we are a puny church necessarily, not that we are persecuted, but still, like the Christians in Philadelphia, we're headed towards the finish line. A door of opportunity has been opened to us. I'm sure you've noticed that, right? Remember when Oldham Lane was built out here? Some of you do. There was nothing. Now there's a whole lot. We have a whole neighborhood cropping up around us. We have a school right behind us. And I know Luke is already trying to get connected and figure out ways that we can partner with the school that's being built behind us. We've got a whole neighborhood just cropping up around us. You don't believe we have an open door of opportunity? Certainly we do. And certainly we need to do something about that. There were two dogs, one a pit bull and one a poodle. And the pit bull was arrogant. I mean, he was proud of himself. And he looked down his nose at the poodle. You know, what can you do, little poodle? And so he sees the door and he says, you want to have a contest? Let's see who can make this door open the quickest. The poodle says, okay. So the pit bull starts snarling and showing his teeth and frothing at the mouth and barking real loud and he he stands on his hind legs and he puts his mouth on the doorknob and after some working with it he's able to open it up 
He turns the knob, pushes the door open. Then he pulls it shut again. He looks at the poodle and he says, all right, your turn. The poodle says, okay. And he walks up and barks a couple of times and scratches on it. And the owner opens it. The key was who was on the inside is the point. You don't have to go through all that snarling and growling and, you know, and, and, and barking when you know who's on the inside. You get him to open the door. And our Lord has already opened the door for us. We just need to walk through it. The one who has the key has already opened it. The same is true for us, just as it was for the Philadelphians. I often hear Christians say, well, I'm waiting on God to show me my purpose. I'm just waiting on God to tell me what to do. I'm waiting for that open door. Folks, we have the open door. We have our purpose. You know what it is? To be Jesus. That is our responsibility. That is the door that has been opened. That is our purpose, to glorify God in everything we do. So get to work. Yes, the details about your life may be up in the air. There's things about your life that you're praying about. But as far as your job as a Christian, it is clear. Be Jesus. Be Jesus until Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, let him find you being Jesus. That is our role. That is our responsibility. Chris, can you be more specific? Yes, absolutely. Here it is. You might want to write it down. Do until you die, or do until he arrives, whichever one comes first. Let Jesus find you being Jesus when he returns. When you leave this earth, let him say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Keep doing until you die. And if you look at the Philadelphian Christians, that's the message to them. Do until you die, and doing focused on two things primarily. Look at it again, verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have followed my word and have not denied my name. Pretty simple, right? Did you catch it? Follow his word, don't deny my name. That wasn't so easy for the Philadelphian Christians. And the reason why is because they lived in an environment, as we said before, that was very hostile towards them, that pressured them to revere the name of Caesar, not the name of Jesus. So, to exalt the name of Jesus would most likely mean persecution, possibly even death. And yet, they stayed true to God's word. They stayed true to his name, their name, the title of Christian, because that was not worst case scenario for them. To be killed for their faith would not, was not worst case scenario. They were on God's side. They were going to win in this whole thing. They would lose nothing in the end. So Jesus tells them to play until the whistle blows. Play up to the very end, leave this world exhausted and worn out, doing my will, exalting my name. There's a great book by Rory Vaden called Take the Stairs. And in that book, he tells the story, true story, of a woman who was trapped on the 84th floor of a high-rise building that was on fire. Now, she knew she couldn't jump to safety, and so she was extremely claustrophobic she was scared of going down the stairs and being in the stairwell with all those people so she did the only thing she knew to do she crawled under her desk and waited to die now thankfully a fireman busted through the door he found her he grabbed her by the hand and tried to pull her out from under the desk and said come on let's go and she said no I can't I'm scared and he said to her well then do it scared and so he pulled her out, he walked her down the stairs, the whole way whispering in her ear, 
do it scared. Just do it scared. And, and she said that that meant so much to her because it made her realize, you know what? I don't have to be completely comfortable with everything that happens to me. Sometimes you got to do it scared, right? I know there are folks in the auditorium this morning that are dealing with chaos in their life, whether it's COVID, whether it's cancer or something else. You've lost a loved one recently. Maybe you lost a loved one many moons ago and, and you still haven't quite gotten over that. Maybe your marriage is in the toilet. Maybe you're going through a divorce. Maybe your life is in shambles for whatever reason. Don't give up. Keep fighting. And do it scared. While you wait, keep going and keep doing. Just, just don't give up. Suffering is inevitable. Misery is optional, right? Don't live in misery. Redeem the time that you have by playing hurt. You either play hurt or you don't play at all. So play hurt. Do it scared. Do it uncomfortable. Play until the whistle blows. You won't be sorry that you did. And by the way, there are two ways that you can wait. You can wait passively or you can wait expectantly. The Thessalonians show us what it means to wait passively. Notice what is written there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Paul is telling these Thessalonian Christians to don't waste your weight. This was a strong church in a lot of ways. They had endured persecution. They had done a lot of good things. But in light of the second coming of Jesus, believing that that was going to happen soon, some of these Christians decided, you know, well, why do anything? Their idleness had led to them doing things that made them busybodies or gossips or scandal mongers or muckrakers, maybe. You know, no? Um, they were irritants. Many of them had said, well, if Jesus is coming back, what, what do I need to work for? Why do I need to labor? Why do I need to break my back doing anything if he's coming back anyway? And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how this works. Until he returns, because you don't know when he's going to return, until he returns, get to work, do something. If you're not going to work, you shouldn't eat. That's a principle that transcends time. No loaf for the loafer, right? Do the work until he comes back. And so that when he comes back, he finds you being Jesus. Expectant waiters are like pregnant mothers. What do we call a pregnant woman? We call her an expectant mother. She carries a promise inside of her. And although she cannot see that baby physically, she knows it's there. And the moment she learns she is pregnant, she begins preparing for that baby's arrival. She gets the nursery ready. There's a baby shower. She begins preparing by buying diapers and all sorts of clothes. She actively prepares for the baby's arrival and for the promise to be fulfilled. She knows it's going to happen. She just has to wait, and she's willing to wait as long as it takes for that promise. So we're like pregnant mothers. 
but we're also like food service employees. What do you call that man or woman that takes your order at the restaurant, fills your drink, brings you your food, brings you the check? We call them a waiter or a waitress, right? Because being expectant, waiting, doesn't mean that you're just hopeful. It also means that you serve. The waiter is a server. And so are we. As waiters, we are servers. We don't sit around hoping that something's going to happen or just waiting for it to happen sometime soon. We go to work and we make things happen until we're waiting for that thing that, that does happen. It's like when we're having guests over to our house. My wife is in the kitchen. She's scurrying around making sure that she gets everything ready. And sad to say, I'm usually sitting on the couch waiting for the doorbell to ring. I tried to explain to her that she's Martha and I'm Mary and I've chosen the good part, but that doesn't, <laughs> that rationale usually doesn't work. We wait. And in my house, it's two different types of waiting. She's getting busy and getting everything done so that when that doorbell rings, she's ready while I just sit and wait. You can wait passively or you can wait expectantly. I think we know that we should all be waiting expectantly doing until we die or until he arrives. D Jesus didn't just give the Philadelphians a couch. He gave them a door. He doesn't just give us a pew. He gives us a purpose and an opportunity. And it's up to us to take advantage of that opportunity and to walk through that door. You know, when you go, through a, when you go to a Cowboys game, you're sitting in the stands with a lot of different people that you don't know. You may know a few people, there may be some other people from Abilene that you see there, but by and large, the people in the stands are people that you don't know. They're like you, they're there to watch the game, but you don't know who they are. And most of the people at a football game are people that are in the stands. There's other people involved in the game, but most of the people that are there, the biggest part of the population are in the stands and you don't know them. Now there's some players on the field and some coaches and you know some of them. You know the ones that get all the glory. You know Dak Prescott. He's the quarterback. He's the one that touches the ball the most. You know Ezekiel Elliott because he fumbles all the time. You know some of these players, right? Because they, they occupy the glory positions. You may know some of the coaches. You don't know probably the right tackle. You probably don't know who the backup safety is. But you know those guys that get all the attention. But there's some other names in the stadium that you probably know as well. They're not on the field. They're not in the stands. Their names are written in the ring of honor around the stadium. Tom Landry, Roger Staubach, Drew Pearson, Tony Dorsett. These are names you recognize, at least some of us. They're in the ring of honor because the Cowboys front office wants us to remember them. Some of their jerseys have been retired. Their, their number has been retired because they're remembered for how great they were. Some of them are not just in the ring of honor. Some of them are in Canton, Ohio, where not only their name appears, but also a bronze bust of them is there so that for generations to come, people can visit and see their name and their likeness and remember their greatness. I want a name that lives on, don't you? I want to outlive my name. I want to leave a legacy of faith. 
And in every church, there are those who sit in the stands and they observe. They don't get dirty. They don't get blocked. They don't get tackled. They don't have any responsibility because they're not there to participate. They're only there to spectate. And then there are those in every church, especially this one, where there are people who want to be involved. They want to invest. They may not can do everything, but they can do something. They realize that there is no such thing as a zero-talent individual. And so maybe they pray for the church. Maybe they teach a class. Maybe they prepare a, a meal. Maybe they set up chairs for a fellowship dinner. Something. They do something because they understand that the Christian life is about participation, not just spectating. You do understand that the way has been paved for us by the blood of the people who went before us. The church's ring of honor would include names like Stephen and Lydia and Dorcas and Barnabas and Paul and Peter and John and a host of others. People bled for this. You have an opportunity to sit here and worship our Lord because of the sacrifice of so many who went before us. Don't you want a name that lives on in eternity? Don't you want a name that you outlive so that when you reach the afterlife, our Lord says to you, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I want all of us here at Oldham Lane to be participators and not merely spectators. And I will say this, I'm not trying to get up in your kitchen this morning. Some of you are visiting with us. Some of you have placed membership with us and you need to take a breath. It's okay to come in and sit for a little while and get a lay of the land and and just kind of breathe. Maybe you've come from a situation where you were wounded. Maybe you've been away from church for a long time. Maybe you've never been in church. And so, obviously, I think it's good to kind of feel things out. But eventually, we all have to get to work, right? That's not Chris McCurley advocating that for Oldham Lane. That's Jesus Christ advocating that in the Bible. That's what it means to be a disciple, to not be a pew potato, but to be a worker, to not waste our weight. So, understand that if you get out of the stands and you get involved in the game, you're going to get tackled, you're going to get dirty, you're going to get hurt. There might be some misery. But I think you'll get over all that when our Lord starts handing out trophies, don't you? So let's get busy. Let's get to work. And if you're scared, do it scared. If you're worried, do it worried. If you're uncomfortable, do it uncomfortable. Just do it. And if we can help you this morning in some way, if you're ready to begin that daily walk with God, you want to study the Bible with someone, you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, you need the prayers of this church family, whatever that need may be, Jim's going to lead us in a song. The invitation is open to you. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?